0: Uh, let's go John chapter 9, John chapter 9, uh, if you, let's also get the lights up if we could please. Um. John chapter 9. If you uh, don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, the little racks beneath the seats. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, we believe that that is a terrible thing. We want you to have a Bible. So if you don't have one that you can call yours, I will give you one, and you can take that physical one that that you see in in the seat. You can take that one home. Uh, We believe that the Bible uh, is the tool that God uses to reveal Himself to His people. Like there's a lot of other really good things that the Bible does and is and is given to be, but the chief thing that God has given us the scriptures for is to reveal himself to his people. We want to know God. Like that's like that's our highest priority around here. And so if you don't have a copy of God's word, take that one and I'll call it the best part of my day. All right. We all good with that? We all in agreement? Good. All right. So John chapter 9. We're getting pretty close now pretty close now to the end of a series that we started at the beginning of the year kind of walking through uh, what we call the, the fruit of the Spirit. Paul lists off nine things in Galatians chapter 5 that are to be markers or character traits if you will uh, present and growing in the life of God's people. And so our tagline for this series uh, uh, Garrett did our artwork for it. Our tagline for this series is what God's people look like. We're, we're just on the nose about that kind of stuff. all right. And so uh, we believe that these are things that ought to be present in the lives and character of God's people. Things that ought to be present and becoming more and more fruitful as people grow in Christ and walk deeper in the Lord and become spiritually more mature. All those kinds of things. And so each week, we go full vacation Bible school and we have you all recite the fruit of the Spirit together. And So now's our chance. We got this one and we got next week. So if you don't have them now, you're in trouble. All right. You ready? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's getting so good. All right, one more time. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Anybody think we can get like a group rate at Fun World? It's gonna be awesome. Are they still open? I don't know if they're still open. All right. They are? We gotta go to a Fun World. All right, so. (laughs) Bob's on to something. All right, so. So over the last few months, over the last few months, we have been kind of breaking the list apart. We, we t- looked at them the very first week as a kind of a corporate whole, uh, this, this thing that has to be taken together. You don't get to pick and choose between the different fruits of the Spirit. I like kindness and I like goodness, but I don't really do the self-control thing. No, all of these things ought to be present. All right? But after we establish that foundation, we begin to highlight each of the fruit in turn. So we've now gotten to uh, this point. We started with love. We moved to joy. And now we're here, right? Um. And we gave ourselves four simple rules to kind of help restrain our our attempt, our approach at breaking these down and kind of understanding them and defining them and all those kind of things. We wanted to make sure that we stayed in a good, healthy, uh, God-honoring place. And so we gave ourselves four rules to follow as we picked them apart. And so the first rule, the first rule is that the fruit are nothing more than the outworking of God's own good character in the lives of his people. Our God doesn't do arbitrary. When he gives commands and puts expectations upon his people, he's not just making it up as he goes. And so all of his commands, all of his expectations upon us are a call to more accurately reflect his image. What was broken by sin is being redeemed and returned and restored into something that looks more and more like God. And that creates a problem for us because he's sinless and he exists in perfection. So, like, how are you doing on that? Anybody woke up this morning and went, yep, sinless perfection right here? (laughs) Looked in the mirror and was like, I don't got to change a thing. I just go to church. (laughs) We got a problem, right? I don't do sinless perfection. And that's where our second rule comes in to save the day. The fruit don't belong to us. They belong to the Spirit. And, And the Spirit is pleased, we would say, pleased to produce the fruit in us as we walk in step with him. It's His job to create these things in us. I'm not capable of looking more and more and more and more like God on my own, but the Spirit is given to us expressly for that purpose. I don't sit around doing nothing, though. I may not be able to make apples grow on the tree, but it is my job. I have been called to make sure that the tree is healthy and has the environment necessary for good fruit to grow. And so in Galatians chapter 5... Paul says that those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What in the world does that mean? It means that I make active work of putting to death the things in me that fight against the Spirit, recreating me to look like Him. And so we've been saying all series long, we cultivate the fruit by practicing the fruit. We cultivate the fruit by practicing the fruit. And as we make the daily decision to day after day after day walk in step with the Spirit, the Spirit will grow each of these fruit in us and slowly but surely, it's going to take a while, it's probably going to take the rest of your life, but slowly but surely, we'll eventually be able to look back and see the growth. There was a fourth rule that we gave ourselves. If we see the fruit correctly, They will always, and I mean always, end up producing a blessing to everyone else around us. Both those inside the church and those outside the church will benefit, get to experience the good things that the fruit produce. Everyone near the tree is blessed by this fruit-bearing tree. And so the gospel will go forward, the church will be strengthened, and God will be glorified. In other words, everybody wins when the fruit is around. So you ready to get into it today? What's our, you don't sound like you're ready to get into it. <laughs> What's our penultimate fruit? I get to say penultimate today. I'm going to drop that when I can. What's our penultimate fruit? Gentleness. So what is gentleness? Well, according to Google, it says the quality of being kind, tender, or mild-mannered. I think that probably most everybody in here would go, yeah, that's a good definition. Kind of like that. I don't, know, I don't know if anybody's picking at that and you know, really upset about it. The quality of being kind, tender, or mild-mannered. Here's where our effort for the week gets complicated, though. If you grew up reading the King James Version of the Bible, then your first experience with the fruit of the Spirit didn't teach you the word gentleness. Which one did it go with? Meekness. Meekness. And if we all hopped in a giant time machine and went back 200 years, I would stand up this morning and say, you know what? Meekness is a much better translation of what's going on in the Greek. It's a good word. I like meekness. Meekness is great. The problem, though, is we don't have a time machine. Unless you do, we should talk. We don't have a time machine. And so what we're left with is our culture's understanding of meekness. And um, our culture, The culture that we find ourselves living in right now, I don't think they use the word meekness the way they did 200 years ago. If we were to instead look up the definition of meekness today instead of the definition of gentleness, you won't find it used in a positive way. And I mean at all. In fact, of all of the secular resources I dug into this week, the latest one I could find of someone using the word meekness that wasn't either uh, an insult to someone's character, someone's timidness, or it was being kind of used as a nod to some religious thing that we don't really believe anymore, that kind of deal, the only secular resource I could find of someone using the word meekness in a positive way that wasn't one of those two things was back in 1907. Harold McGrath's The Best Man, if you're interested. Go read it, I guess. I haven't read it. I, that's not a, I don't, I don't know if you should. All right. But in our context, in our, the world we live in, the word meekness is used as a way of describing someone's insufficiency of a fighting spirit. A character level lack of resolve to battle for what you want and need. So the world is... The world has clearly shifted shifted the definition of meekness from a positive thing to, I would say, a very negative thing. And that's likely, I would probably argue, that's likely why a lot of our modern English translations translate that word as gentle now instead of meekness. Gentle tends to carry a positive tone instead of a negative one. But the more important question to ask why exactly, what exactly did Paul have in view when he, according to the ESV, uses the word gentle in Galatians 5? What's Paul aiming at? Well, there are two root words that often get translated as gentle in the New Testament. The first word is epiakos. Right, and I'm butchering that because I don't know Greek very well. Epiakos. Right, right. It carries the idea of tolerating something. Tolerating someone to put up with them. Um, you've got the power and you allow others to hang around because, you know, you're gentle like that. You're going to let them stay. If my son and I are wrestling around and I give him a pretend pile driver, it's not because I don't know how to do the real one. I got 200 pounds on the kid. I can pull it off. It's because I fear the wrath of his mom. (laughs) Right? Right? Doesn't matter how much the little punk is asking for it, I restrain myself. The second word that often gets rendered as gentle in the New Testament is the word "praites." Praites, in it, it's all about a softness towards the weak because of humility. Softness towards others because of humility. The first word is as a restraint towards others who don't deserve that restraint from you. That's kind of a good thing, I think we would all argue. But the second word is used in circumstances where you are actively looking to serve those who don't have power. Hey, anybody want to guess which one Paul uses in Galatians 5? It's the second word. It's the second word. Praites. And it's here that we get to look at our text for the morning. Unlike all of our other fruit that we've looked at so far in this series, um, our, our word gentleness never actually appears in this text. Um, It's just not there. Week after week, we've always picked a text to try to define our word and apply our word uh, that always had the word in it, which seems kind of smart, right? Um, But that doesn't have it this week. It just doesn't exist in John chapter 9. But what we do have, however, is a story where that posture just absolutely saturates a couple of moments. And I think you're smart enough to pick up on it. right, so we're going to go there. Uh, So what's the context we're we're walking into? Well, John 9 is happening later on in Jesus' public ministry. About half of John's gospel account is dedicated to the last week or so of Jesus' life. Excuse me. All right, um, there are 21 chapters. Wow. Okay, now it's gone. All right, so... There are 21 chapters in the book of John, and uh, the, the triumphal entry, uh, what we normally celebrate on Palm Sunday, that happens in chapter 12. And so a big old chunk of John is dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. But John spends the first half-ish of his account walking through some very specific miracles that uh, would identify Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. All right, specific signs that the Jews believed the coming Messiah would uniquely carry with him and with him alone. One of those signs, according to Isaiah 35, is that the Messiah would open the eyes of the blind. Only the Messiah could do that kind of stuff. Guess what's about to happen in our story today? So John 9 is a really long text. Instead of slowly walking through it verse by verse like we normally do, I'm going I'm to read all of it all the way through. So we can kind of grab a hold of the narrative in our heads and then we'll back up and kind of hit the highlights as we go. Okay? You good with that? John chapter 9. Let's read it together. Verse 1. It says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. And so they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. Verse 13, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, well, he's a prophet. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. Verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had, given, who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner he answered whether he is a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind now I see. They said to him, "What did he do to you? How how did he open your eyes?" And he answered them, "I have told you already, and would you not and would you not listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples?" And they reviled him saying, "You are a disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from." The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were uh, not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard, in verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, "Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him?" Jesus said to him, "You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you." He said, "Lord, I believe," and he worshipped him. Jesus said, "For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind." Some of the Pharisees heard him. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, "Are we also blind?" Verse forty-one. Jesus said to them, "If you were blind, you would have no guilt." But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. All right, so a long story, but a familiar story to anyone who's got any bit of a church background is the man born blind. We all know the story. Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem. They're there to celebrate a feast, and and, and it's what good Jews would do in their time period. You you go up to Jerusalem, and you stay in town until the feast is over. It's usually about a week long, or in the case of Passover and Pentecost, it was like 50 days, all right? But Jesus and his boys are rolling through town, walking around town on one of the Sabbath days, and they come across this man, this blind man. And we learn in verse 8 that he's a beggar, right? Um, In the first century Near Eastern world, like, That was really his only option, begging. For one, because the world he lived in wasn't built out for people in his situation. There's no ADA compliance in this time period. He he needed massive amounts of help from people who could see and who could do things, and he was just kind of dependent on them. There's another significant piece of this man's condition of life, and it's found in the discussion that starts off the story in verse 2. Look back at it. Verse 2, talking to Jesus, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So there's an assumption buried in this question, right? And the assumption is that this man's blindness is directly caused by somebody's sin. Whether, Whether it was the man that they were looking at, or maybe his parents were responsible in some kind of way, the disciples are curious and they want to know whose fault it is. That's their question. They lived in a world that that saw blindness and saw other disabilities and even saw simple things as like basic destitution and poverty. They saw that as a personal judgment of God upon a specific sin in someone's life. That's the assumption. Maybe that sin was known to others. Maybe it was only known to God, but God knew and God had spoken. That's the point. So where where do the disciples get off believing such a thing? Well, for starters... That's pretty much the default posture of most people across most of human history. Bad thing happened to me, therefore, big God in the sky must be unhappy for some reason. What did I do wrong? That's a base level worldview for a lot of people in this world throughout the history of the world. That is that posture is the key tenet in all karmic religions, the prosperity gospel, and every form of animism. Big sky God is unhappy. What did I do wrong? We're talking about Jewish men following a Jewish rabbi. How did they get there? Because we can point to a very long list of places in the Old Testament where God punishes His people because of their sin. It's not hard to make the list. Their question is not out of bounds because we can point to very specific times where God acted exactly in that way times when specific people were punished for specific sin, times when the whole nation of Israel was punished because of the corporate sin as a nation say something out loud that shouldn't be controversial but it's probably going to be seen as controversial the infinitely righteous and wise creator and sustainer of, the hev- of heaven and earth he is allowed to enact judgment on sinful people in whatever way he deems fit, period it's his call It's his world, it's his standard, he's the judge and the executioner. It's on him and him alone to make that call. We can say it a different way. If God wants to strike a man blind because of his sin, it is not merely justified, it is perfect justice. Based upon what we know about the gospel and about our need for a Savior, I mean, anybody willing to try to make the argument that this... Blind man is innocent? Or his parents? There's no innocent party here except for Jesus. So the disciples come into this situation because they're good Jews with the clear knowledge that God can and will judge sin with perfect righteousness. And that judgment may come in their lifetime, or it may come when they stand finally before God, but that's God's call to make, right? And the disciples come into this situation with Jesus having already taught them that their sin was bigger and deeper and more heinous than they were even aware. The Sermon on the Mount has already happened by this point. They know. They know that there are things that they haven't even thought of that separate them relationally from God. So, you can kind of get the idea where the question comes from, right? It's not a ridiculous question. It's an incredibly fair question. Whose fault is this? So, so what's the problem with the question then? It's it's that they think that there are only two options available. The problem with the question is that they think that there are only two options available. Clearly, this is, is a result of sin. So, whose sin is it, Jesus? But That's a false dichotomy. Those things don't have to be the only options. And Jesus points that out in verse 3. Look at it. Verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So the answer, the official answer from Jesus is neither. And then Jesus introduces a third option, that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, just like we can point to example after example in the Old Testament where God enacted righteous punishment upon sin, we can also point to example after example in the Old Testament where suffering has zero relation to that person's sin at all. It's all over the place. Stories like Job, right? We're told explicitly in his story that his suffering was due to his relative righteousness even. He kind of gets the opposite treatment. See, sometimes... Sometimes in the Bible, people suffer because their sin was punished in their earthly life. God can and does and is allowed to do it again. Sometimes in the Bible, people suffer because sin had natural repercussions that caused them pain. I have done dumb stuff that ended up costing me something. How about you? Sometimes in the Bible, people suffer because the world is broken by sin, and the brokenness of that world kind of bears its weight on people. Sometimes in the Bible, people suffer because the forces of evil have some control in this world. And they get to make a mess of things. The moral of the story is that the problem of evil is bigger and more nuanced question than, well, bad thing happened to me, therefore big sky God must be unhappy for a reason. What did I do wrong? It's bigger than that. In John 9, Jesus points to a man who had been blind from birth, a man who had spent his entire adult life as a beggar. He points to him and goes, That guy? You want to know about that guy? That guy gets to see God's glorious work. So, what is that glorious work? Look at verse 6. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So Jesus heals the man of his blindness, right? That's awesome. How does he do it? He spits in the dirt, makes some mud, slathers it on the man's eyes, and then tells him to go wash it off. First of all, gross. <laughs> Secondly, though, Why? Why why is this the order of operations here? Does Jesus need the mud? Is there something magical about his spit mixing with dirt that's somehow effectual to heal? No. Jesus heals other people in all sorts of ways. Tells the lame man to just get up and walk. He touches a leper. The woman with the issue of blood comes and grabs a hold of the hem of his robe when he's in the middle of a crowd. He's got to ask, who did this? We read the story of the centurion earlier. Through a messenger, he tells him, yeah, your servant will be fine because of your faith. In the case of the man with the withered hand, Jesus tells him to stretch his crippled hand out, and like apparently he healed it when nobody was looking because he was just mad at the crowd. Jesus doesn't need the mud. He doesn't need the pool. So, Jesus is Jesus just putting on a show here? It's all a big act. It's a little abracadabra to make himself look like a big deal. Is that what's going on? Are we all in agreement here that when Jesus does something he doesn't have to do, it's probably something we need to pay attention to and learn from? So, what's the important thing we need to learn? Well, I think we find it in the words anoint and scent. Anoint and scent. The word anoint, it really just means to apply something to. And so you could just as accurately translate this as Jesus slathered the mud on the man's eyes. That's all the word means, but it works technically in the Greek. But I think the ESV and the King James like it. Uh, both choose to render this word as anoint because they assume that there's a tenderness here in Jesus' actions. Anoint carries a tone that slather doesn't, right? Posture and purpose in this moment are going to affect how the mud gets on the blind man's eyes. Just going to. And then Jesus tells tells him to go and wash the mud off in a pool with a very specific name. What does it mean? Scent. Scent. It wasn't until 2004 that archaeologists actually found the pool in Jerusalem. We had a pool that we called Siloam that we thought might be it, but then we discovered, ah, that probably wasn't built until like 400 A.D. And so we're like, we just don't know where it is. Until in 2004 when some regular maintenance water line work was happening in the city of Jerusalem and the workers like, discovered an archaeological site. It's like, oh, we probably ought to call somebody. And now we know where the pool of Siloam was. How about that? We don't know, however, we don't know, however, how, exactly where this encounter between Jesus and the blind man occurs. Beggars usually, in that time period, congregated at, near the city gates and at the entrance of the temple, and so um, it, it, we don't know if Siloam just happened to be the closest pool, or if he had to travel across town, or anything like that. But but John goes out of his way to tell us what the pool's name means. That was important to him, so we probably ought to pay attention to that, right? Jesus sends him to the scent pool. And again, I don't think that's some accident. I don't think that's just happenstance. I think Jesus is intentionally giving a purpose to a man who didn't have one before. I think there's a tenderness here that goes way beyond merely healing the problem of the man's eyesight. It, like, like there's a posture of gentleness that is not required from Jesus if all he wants to do is just get the job done and move along. We've got two kinds of gentleness, right? So is this the reluctant toleration of the weak by someone with power, or is this the humility that's seeking the welfare of the weak? Is this case, or is this praetis? Let it be known that Jesus has a Galatians 5 kind of Gentleness. Jesus is Galatians 5, gentle, and so the man goes off, he washes in the pool, and the man who was blind from birth can now see, and like, people got some questions, right? When you have some questions, I would have some questions. Is that really him? No, that can't be him. I think it is him. how did this happen to you? What did Jesus actually do? Folks are starting to buzz, right? The Jewish authorities find out, they turn up the pressure. Notice, by the way, the complete lack of gentleness on their behalf. They don't just have questions, they interrogate him. They condescend. They call in the man's parents, they ask them questions, but they do it in a way, in a tone that mom and dad understand that how they answer matters because if they give the wrong kind of answer, they're going to be in trouble. So the best they can do is dodge it, ask him, he's of age. Look at verse 24. Verse 24, so for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. The Pharisees, excuse me, the Pharisees are caught up in, with, the, with this wrestle of, of with the, their refusal to believe that Jesus is the Christ and their incredibly obvious reality that Jesus is doing what only the Messiah was able to do. How do you reconcile that? There's a dissonance there. And so their attempt to reconcile that dissonance, they, they call this formerly blind man back in, and what do they do? They pressure him into trying to confess that Jesus is not who Jesus claims to be. Lovely people, those Pharisees. And the formerly blind man just goes, I don't know. I just know that I couldn't see when I got up this morning, and now I can. We probably ought to act like that's a big deal. And then what's probably my favorite part of the story, the Pharisees ask again how Jesus managed to pull it off. The guy goes, I already told you. Are you asking again because you secretly want to be his disciples too? (laughs) Now, I don't know. I don't know if that was a genuine question or if he was poking back. I just really wish that I was that quick off the draw. (laughs) Right? Whatever the case, though, the Pharisees go off. In verse 28, it's not a good response. You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. And then the formerly blind man points out their key disconnect. I don't know if you know this, but making blind people see kind of pokes a lot of holes in your theory there. probably ought to celebrate. But instead of celebrating, the Pharisees doubled down in their anger. And we are shown the peak of their condescension in verse 34. Look at it. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. See, the problem with the case version of gentleness, the posture of tolerance towards those who are weaker than you, the problem is that it's, it's never ever long before that tolerance runs out of gas either because it's taking too long or because the supposedly weaker person wasn't sufficiently grateful for your tolerance. And so we're told that they insult him and they cast him out. They probably had summoned him to report to the neighborhood synagogue, and so casting him out could, could, mean that they formally dismissed him from membership. That's what the threat was with the parents, right? Um, But his status as a blind beggar that likely was a blind beggar because of sin probably meant that he was never a member of the synagogue anyways. So it's more likely that cast him out means that they violently shoved him out the door. Once the pious tolerance is gone, it turns quickly into a pseudo-pious use of force to assert control. But then we see something astoundingly different in verse 35. Look at it. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Well, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. So Jesus hears that this man has been cast out, and what does he do? He goes and finds him. The formerly blind man isn't looking for Jesus. Jesus goes looking for the man. There's a different tone there. He searches them out. And then when he finds him, he introduces himself. Right? Before this point, John doesn't record a single thing that Jesus said to the blind man other than, go wash in the pool of Siloam. That's all we get. I don't know if there was an introduction before he put spit mud on the dude's eyes. Feels like something that's necessary. but John doesn't tell us about that. We also have no record of the formerly blind man having said anything to Jesus. So all we have to go on, all the times that the formerly blind man was asked about over and over again who he thought Jesus was and how he did his work, the only thing that he had to go on was the fact that Jesus told him what to do and he did that thing and the thing happened. Right? That's the point. And now after having what I would probably argue was a pretty confusing day, The very next thing out of Jesus' mouth to this man is to ask him if he believes in the Son of Man. Now, I don't know how well this young man knows his Bible. He's got parents who are involved in the synagogue. But I don't know how well this young young man knows his Bible. But that title is how the Messiah is described in the book of Daniel. The Son of Man. It also seems to be the title that Jesus preferred for himself because it's the one he uses about himself most often. He just kind of liked it better than the other options. But whether the man knows the significance of that title or not, he doesn't say no. No, I don't believe in the Son of Man. No, he says, point him out. I'll be happy to follow him. I'll be happy to believe in him. And Jesus goes, this guy. And verse 38 tells us that he responded in such a simple and profound way. Lord, I believe And he worshipped. Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Do you for for real? Forget about your unanswered questions for just a moment. They're not unimportant, but they can probably possibly be in the way. Set the questions aside for a second. Do you believe that Jesus is exactly who he says he is? Sure, this young man had a lot of follow-up questions for Jesus, wouldn't you? I'm sure he did. But the humble and compassionate, old-fashioned meekness of Jesus went chasing him. And he introduced himself to him. He had literally seen Jesus and he knew what Jesus had done and that was enough. Lord, I believe. And he worshiped. Maybe you're here today and you're not a, a follower of Jesus yet maybe that maybe that's you. I don't know you. I don't know your heart, but Jesus is gentle. He's the old fashioned version of meek, and he goes searching. and maybe you're here today, and he's seeking tenderly seeking you and making himself known. The Bible teaches that we are all. By default, separated relationally from God because of our sin, that we are owed His just and righteous punishment for sin. The Bible calls that that punishment death, something infinitely worse than blindness. But the Bible also teaches that it is while we were still weak that Christ died for the ungodly. See, the greatest act of praietes gentleness the world has ever known happened at the cross. That is infinite gentleness. Jesus lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross to make full and final payment for your sin, and he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And he calls on you in this very moment to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin, to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And listen, you can do that this morning. You can you can give yourself to Jesus, place your hope in Jesus, respond in faith to Jesus. I'd love to, to be helpful to you. In a moment, we're going to have a time of response. We're going to pray and we're going to sing again. I'll be standing down there if you want to talk to somebody about it. I'd love to be helpful to you. What about those of us who are already followers of Jesus? How, how, how do we respond, right? Like, what, what, what do we do? And how in the world do we turn this into a fruit of the Spirit? Like, weren't we in a series or something? Well, that's why we need our four rules. So what's rule number one? Character of God rather than some external idea of niceness, right? Jesus is gentleness in perfection. And it's good news that he is, right? Because, like, uh, our calling to to look more and more like Jesus in gentleness, but, like, I I don't know about you, but I, I tend to be more tolerant than humble. Are you any better? I tend to be more tolerant than truly humble. And so I kind of desperately need rule number two in this moment, right? How about you? The fruit of the Spirit, they, they, don't, they don't originate out of anything in me. They belong to the Spirit. And so I can trust that slowly but surely, He will get me there. As I walk in step with Him, He leads me and prepares me and ultimately changes But I've also been called to a specific task. Rule number three, right? We grow in the fruit by practicing the fruit. And and just like we grow in love and just like we grow in patience and just like we grow in kindness, I think we grow in gentleness by dying to ourselves and actively surrounding ourselves with those who need gentleness. That's how we aim for that. Maybe you got somebody in your life that you tolerate really, really well. But even the Pharisees do that. See, what we need is an otherworldly humility that we can only find in Jesus. And so as we cultivate that kind of gentleness, we'll inevitably bring about rule number four. Others will benefit from the fruit growing in us. And so I think, I think our response is we probably need to take the shape of actively seeking out those who need an otherworldly gentleness and showing them the unique beauty and sufficiency of our Savior and King. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a, that's a time that we set aside to respond to God's word. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe, maybe it's time for you to, to formally join our church family. Or maybe it's time that you, you come forward and say, I, I, I want to be obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized. Or maybe, maybe it's time to apply Galatians 5 gentleness to someone who doesn't know Jesus far, far away from here. Maybe that's the, the step you need to take this morning. Whoever you are, though. However, God's word is calling you to respond this morning. Let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for John 9. I need your infinite gentleness as much as the blind man did. And now that you've called me yours, I want to better image your perfect gentleness. But I'm weak and I'm selfish. I am insufficient for the task. Thank you for sending your son to make payment for my insufficiency. Thank you for sending the Spirit to apply the things I need to look more like you. We pray that as individuals and as a church family that you'll shape us to... To be the kind of gentle that makes others know who you are. Father, if for any in here who don't know you yet, would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know this morning? Would you call men and women into your kingdom today. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.